welcome to Independent Claws, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast. I'm your host, Chris, also known as Sparf. Today, I'd like to do something by way of introduction. Who am I? What is the mission of this podcast? That sort of thing. Well, as I said, my name is Chris. I'm known in the furry fandom as Sparf. My background is in computer science and theater, and I began writing anthropomorphic fiction several years ago. My work has appeared in several anthologies, including Fang 7 and Roar 7. I'm also one of several people who helps to put together RAR, the Regional Anthropomorphic Writers' Retreat. As for the mission of this podcast, I have been looking for a way to combine my love of podcasts in general with my enthusiasm for writing and reading anthropomorphic fiction. I wanted to have a place to discuss my views on writing, the challenges writers face, technical quibbles, and the occasional grammatical pedantry. Uh, But also, I wanted a place to discuss works of anthropomorphic fiction. I love recommending books I enjoy to others, and signal boosting for authors whose work I feel is underappreciated. The format of the podcast will follow the example set out by other writing podcasts in that in any given episode I will discuss a topic or set of topics related to the art and craft of writing. I also hope to be able to recommend a book on at least a semi-regular basis. Sometimes this will be a book from a furry small press like Sofa Wolf, Fur Planet, or Rabbit Valley, but not always. There's a wild world of anthropomorphism in fiction, and it's incredibly important for writers to read beyond their niche. Now that we've got all that out of the way, listeners, let's talk setting. No story takes place in a vacuum. Uh, The characters in a story need to inhabit a believable world. You may write a world that is nearly identical to our own, with the principal difference being that it is inhabited by anthropomorphic animals, either wholly or in part. Alternately, your world may be a medieval-inspired fantasy realm, or a post-apocalyptic world of savagery, super science, and sorcery. You could be on a far-flung planet in an undiscovered galaxy, or your entire story can take place in the back room of a local convenience store. For the purposes of this episode, I'm focusing on more fantastical settings. As you work on setting, you can apply what you've learned to slice of life or modern style settings, but quote-unquote genre and speculative fiction supply some concrete examples to work from, and there are a lot of them. The question is often asked, how much is too much? And like most answers in writing, it boils down to, it depends. There is an audience who appreciates side treks into a world's mythology and lore, triggered only by, say, a character passing a field where Napoleon was once defeated. But that audience... uh... This is anecdotal. That audience seems to be the minority these days. Uh, The advice I will give is this. Do I have a sense of place? Does the setting that, that you have provided create a proper atmosphere and to the degree that you want to show it? There's a balance, and it is different for every author and every reader of things explicitly stated versus things that are implicit and that the reader must infer from the details given. Your reader's imagination is the most important tool in your writing toolbox, but it's not a hammer. It's a Dremel rotary tool. 
You have to know exactly what those pieces are that make it most effective, and you have to learn how to use them. You can't use a Dremel to drive a nail. It's been said by far better authors than I that words in a story can do three things. and They create atmosphere, they advance plot, or they reveal character. Now, at a minimum, I strive for words to do at least two of those, all three admirable but not always possible for a variety of reasons. Economy of words is a powerful skill to develop, and one which I, whose uh, quote-unquote short stories generally run in the ten to 20,000 word range, still struggle with. If you have never read Shirley Jackson, I recommend her work. Uh, her prose is some of the best economy of words out there. She's not perfect. She's peppered throughout occasionally with unnecessary adverbs and things like that, but she's very economical with her words in general. The opening paragraph of her seminal psychological horror novel, The Haunting of Hill House, seems to do only one of those three things I mentioned. Now, that opening paragraph, I will read that to you. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed, by some, to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Now, as you can see, it seems to set the atmosphere of your quintessential haunted house. Uh, the subtle contrast of images of dark insanity with the description of the walls, the bricks, the floors being straight and sensible and normal and firm uh, gives us a real feeling that things are somehow slightly off of normal, or maybe they're just too normal. But there's one additional thing this paragraph does that's not readily apparent until you get into the book, and it introduces us to the antagonist of the story. And not literally, of course, uh, throughout the book, we're never quite sure of the nature of the house. Uh, Eleanor, who is the protagonist, has her own demons to fight with, and she is not, strictly speaking, the narrator, because the book is a third-person, limited perspective, but she comes fairly close to being an unreliable narrator, at least in some respects. In any case, the house is a character. Jackson doesn't give us certainty whether it is the house or ghosts within the house that are causing the problems that are the malevolent force. The setting of Hill House is built almost brick by brick and stair by stair as the occupants explore it. Another master of horror does this really well, especially in his early works, and people like to make a joke out of Stephen King, but he truly is a master of the craft. He takes the atmosphere of Hill House and applies it liberally. The obvious parallel is with the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, which, unlike Hill House, is unambiguously malevolent in its own right and is directly active. 
Jack Torrance's interactions with the hotel and its twists and turns mirror the twists and turns of his own addiction and his loss of control. Uh, King even references the opening paragraph of The Haunting of Hill House in Salem's Lot, when his protagonist visits the old house on the hill that contains the new evil that the town has to face. But that house is only a part of King's larger setting. In Salem's Lot, he does something that I don't see done or even attempted very often. There are interludes between sections of the book that deal directly with the actions of the main or supporting characters, and these interludes deal with the town itself. Not one or two denizens, but skipping from place to place, from the nosy old woman who spreads the town's gossip on a party line from the window of her living room, to the diner, to the people wondering about the new antique furniture store run by the mysterious Mr. Straker. These interludes show us the town as the sickness begins to take hold and how it changes. Once again, the setting itself is a character. Now, I've waxed poetic on the works of Jackson and King for a while, but I wanted to put those ideas out there right up front. There are some things I think you should always consider in the setting. Number one, what are the economics of the setting? Do they matter? Usually they do to varying degrees because we are creatures of economy. You don't have to make your story about class struggle, but the economics are important to understand. Can I reasonably believe your character has access to the types of devices, of clothing, etc. that you're giving them? Do economics play a role in class? How heavily is the society's class structure enforced? For example, let's say... We have a character like Batman. Everyone knows Batman. Batman is Bruce Wayne, billionaire, playboy, etc., etc., etc. We've countless superheroes like him. If we took a hero like Batman and took away his money, would we believe that he has access to the kind of gear he has access to? Probably not. So then, how would that change the character? How would that change his interaction with people? Uh, with the criminal element, would he be able to survive an attack by something like the Joker's Joker gas? I'd like to think so, but then again, I'm a Batman fan, and I don't honestly believe that if he didn't have money, he would be able to do anything besides be a street punk. He wouldn't have been able to have the training he had. Another question that is sort of all-encompassing is, do physics work the same way? This one is a little more tricky because in most instances you want that answer to be yes, uh, because that is a painful thing to try to write if you change the way base physics of our universe operate across the board. Now, if you're in a magic setting or you're writing about a specific physics-altering thing, say in science fiction, like faster-than-light travel, which is currently impossible based on modern physics, the answer can be yes, but it should probably be yes, but. There, there are consequences to that, or limitations to that. You can't just change everything. Inventing new physics may be fun for you, and if it is, you go for it. It's your story. Just make sure that the reader is given a way to grasp what the physics are and how they're different. In one particular sci-fi novel of some renown, which I won't name, uh, the author introduces us to the physics of outer space through the eyes of his protagonist, who has to process how each movement works differently without gravity, and he's still got to fight, and he still has to strategize and lead a squad. 
there are a couple of ways that you can go about working on setting as it relates to world building, and the first I'm going to call the Tolkien method. Uh, now, I will. I want you to understand that there is no wrong way to do this if it works for you. That is the the golden core thing of creating a setting and creating a story, is if it's working for you as a process and it gets results, don't listen to me or anyone else tell you, well, you're researching me the wrong way, because there is no such thing. That said, there are downfalls to various types of, of world building and research, and I want to make sure that I try to cover them a little bit. So the first one I call the Tolkien Method. This is the famous method of J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings, uh, who held a chair of English Language and Literature at Merton College in Oxford, and thus had all the time in the world to dedicate to the pursuit of world-building. And boy, did he ever. Uh, Tolkien was famously a stickler for detail in his stories, and he spent ages working on the myths and legends and lore of his now-famous Middle-earth before writing the Lord of the Rings books themselves. He spent a decade prior to writing The Lord of the Rings, working on that setting. His settings are so real to his readers because that background is there, and because the work is consistent in its references to it. It's consistent basically throughout. Unfortunately, this leads to a few glaring problems when you try to enact this yourself. Now, these problems aren't insurmountable. You may have your own perfect way to, to work. That's great. Uh, they're not often something a beginning writer would think of until it's too late. Number one is, if you've ever heard the phrase paralysis by analysis, it applies to this type of writing. It is so easy to get caught up in your world building and myth making that you never sit down and write the damn story. Tolkien worked on his mythos, like I said, for a decade before the Lord of the Rings trilogy was set down, and he had the ability to do that because he had other pursuits. Now, number two is that the weight of all of this myth-making has got an irresistible charm to it. Once you've created it, you're going to want to stuff as much of it into your story as possible. Why would you do all the work creating the dark and abandoned necromantic fortress of Dol Guldur and not use it? So the end result often comes out, especially among the inexperienced, as info-dumping, either in the narrative... Or sometimes, although admittedly I see this less frequently, uh, in the as-you-know-Bob dialogue sequences between characters who know damn well what these things are already. Tolkien himself did plenty of info-dumping. He would pause the narrative for three or four pages to tell some fascinating tidbit of history or setting. And, you know, he's one of the most popular writers of all time, so if, if you do it well enough, go for it. But it's not going to be... I think, as popular these days as it is with uh, the people who read Tolkien when it was first published. Now, the other extreme is the as-you-go method. And this is the method I lean on when I write. And here is where you describe bits of the setting as the character thinks of, sees, or interacts with them. Now, this method works very well when you're trying to keep the pace of the story going. If you have an interesting bit of personal technology, for instance, that you want to introduce, but that protagonist is already intimately familiar with, how should you do that? Well, if it is somehow different from normal, either by design or by behavior in a specific instance, you can point that out through the character's interaction with the object. 
I do not often think of how a computer mouse works, but if you put one in front of me that has a numeric keypad at the thumb, I'm going to notice that, and I'm going to think about that, and I'm going to be a little more attentive to that, because there is something special going on there. Uh, characters will do the same thing, because ideally characters are just people, and they're as, as three-dimensional as you can make them on the page. What you can also do is imply an object's function through context and even through name, while never explicitly spelling out what it does. I mean, you can make it fairly obvious um, very, very easily if, if, it's a, if it's your interface and, it's, and you describe it as having a green glow and text then a cyberpunk reader is going to pick that up as a terminal window. That's fine. You don't want to do that to everything in your world, or the world is going to feel sort of paper-thin and flimsy and not very well fleshed out. There's a nice balance you have to find where the world you are modeling feels as believable as possible. The problems that I run into with this method is that I often will just blaze so far past the necessary and the pertinent details of setting while I'm pushing the plot or characters forward that editing becomes a complete rewriting to add in details that I forgot to mention, and that becomes a slog. Uh, sometimes I will get to that point when I am on deadline and it will feel like I do not get to sleep for a week because I am doing nothing but editing. And I do it to myself by not taking that timer up front. So again, everything in balance. I don't want to spend a decade writing my lore, but I also don't want to spend 10 seconds writing 10 lines of text and have no sense of place. If you manage to avoid that particular issue, which hopefully you will, please remember that it is important to keep track of things you bring up, if the work is book length or if you plan on returning to the setting. If you bring up something in a short story that you're never going to do anything else with and you don't explain it well, then it's there and unless an editor says, hey, I don't understand this, then it can probably stand. But there are a few things as embarrassingly frustrating as beginning edits on a new project and you realize that you have completely changed the name and species of a character between chapter 1 and chapter 16. And there is no one to blame but yourself for this. So you sit and stare at the screen, and you blush and you fume and you hem and haw, and finally you decide, well, it's time to go back and find all of the problems. And then you discover that you changed the name again halfway between, so now you have two sets of names you're looking for to replace. It's not fun. Now, for keeping track of universes, there are a number of uh, software applications you can use. Now, for individual books, I keep my world-building notes and research in provided folders or folders I create in Scrivener, uh, which has a nice uh, hierarchy of structure. Um, and if you haven't tried it out, you owe it to yourself to try. Their website is literatureandlatte.com. Now, they have Mac, Windows, and iOS clients, and they all sync with each other via Dropbox. So since the iOS title came out, I don't even have to take my super light MacBook Air with me anymore. I can just take with me the, um, the, the iPad in a keyboard case, and it's super easy to travel with. Um, if you have an iPhone 6S Plus, or you have smaller hands and you have a 6S, uh, you might even be able to get some writing done on a commute on a train when you forget to bring your computer or your tablet. 
Now, if you're working on something that's going to span multiple titles, um, then I'm going to say probably it's better to do something like Evernote or Microsoft OneNote or a personal wiki, something like Wikipad. Uh, those can be your best friend. Um, you want to set up a structure and you want to make sure you keep your stuff organized because it will be really beneficial. You know, three books down the line when you have to remember what were the nine names of the nine kingdoms when you've only actually interacted with two of them and you haven't had to mention any of them since. So I've talked a little bit about setting. Now there's a lot more that can be discussed. I know I'm going to revisit the topic in the future. But for a first episode, I think we're not doing too badly. I want to stop there and make this episode's book recommendation. Now, please note, I may sometimes be friends with the authors of the books I recommend, uh, but I am not currently sponsored by any author or publisher. These recommendations come from me and from me alone. Today's book is Koa of the Drowned Kingdom by Ryan Campbell. Now, when I talk about a setting that lets the reader fill in details but has enough concrete information to push the imagination, one of the first books that comes to mind is Koa. I'll, I'll read you the blurb. The Kingdoms, a civilization built in giant mangrove trees where enchantments are common for the wealthy flying foxes of the upper branches, when Koa was just a pup, a terrible storm killed his family and left him with shredded wings. Now living with his adopted otter family, Koa falls in love with a bat from the world he lost long ago. Though he will never belong in a world made for those who can fly, he's willing to brave dark magic and treachery for just one dance. If you have ever enjoyed a Don Bluth animated film like An American Tale or All Dogs Go to Heaven, this book is right up your alley. Uh, it is like reading an animated movie in book form. The storytelling is rich and the world ripe for further exploration, which I hope he does in the future. You can pick this book up in paperback from FurPlanet.com or from the FurPlanet table at your favorite convention. Uh, you can also pick it up as an ebook from their electronic publishing imprint, BadDogBooks.com. They provide formats that are compatible with most e-readers and tablets, so you won't have much trouble reading it on your computer or on your favorite device. Now, there's one more thing I want to discuss today. Uh, RAR, the Regional Anthropomorphic Writers Retreat, is doing a write-a-thon to help raise funds for our next workshop. Uh, for just over a month, writers will work towards goals to earn money from friends, colleagues, people they get to donate who pledge money, much like a walkathon. I'm going to be participating myself, and you'll find a donation link in the show notes on my website at chriswilliamsauthor.com or at the official RAR website at rar.community. You can also find information about the workshop, including how to apply. As a student in the first workshop, I will tell you without hesitation what a fantastic experience it was and how it helped hone my critical eye, not just for the work of other people, but also for my own. And that is an incredibly valuable skill. Having the ability to look at your own work and go, this isn't working, here's why it's not working, now I know what to fix, is priceless. If there was ever a situation that felt like leveling up in a video game, this workshop was it. So if you think you can help, either by donating or by participating in the write-a-thon, 
or you'd just like to get more information and perhaps apply for a slot in 2017's RAR, then please head over to www.rar.community. That's R-A-W-R dot community. Well, that's all I have for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. You can reach me for feedback or for questions at podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com. You can find Independent Clause on Twitter at Clause Podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Sparf. So everyone have a good day, a good night, and don't let anything keep you from writing.